James chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. And as you turn in there, let me bring you up to speed. If you're new with us, James is a uh, letter written by this ancient apostle to a group of scattered Christians, persecuted, struggling in a variety of ways, and he has helped us for many weeks now and will continue to help us for a few more weeks as well. Let me say this by way of introduction today. This passage uh, is written to a specific subset of his struggling community, and it is written to a group of wealthy, successful business people uh, that have forgotten how much they need the Lord. And even though not all of us would fall into that same category today, boy, we can relate to this more than we want to let on, because isn't that the human condition? We find ourselves in some kind of distress and disarray. We cry out to the Lord, please help me. And then things kind of stabilize, and just a few weeks later, we're right back on our merry way, uh, sometimes practically living as if God didn't exist. And that is certainly the modus operandi for these folks today. And so James, under the inspira uh, inspiration of the Spirit, writes to correct that thinking, and by extension, he does that for us as well. So let me pray and ask for the Spirit's help on this text, and then we'll get right after it. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and illuminate these texts to us. We pray that we'd be informed in our knowledge of Scripture, transformed by the renewing of our mind, conformed to the image of Christ, and recommissioned on the Great Commission. Lord, help me, frail as I am, to serve us well in this time. In Jesus' good name, amen. All right, let's take a look, beginning here in verse 13. Come now. You who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Now, phrase at a time here, first phrase, come now you who say could also be translated, now listen. And it is a pointed call for attention that indicates and offsets the seriousness of that which is to follow. So it's James's proverbial way of saying, hey guys, listen up, something important to say here, and you need to lean in and listen to it. This language, the verb tense here, also indicates that this is not uh, an isolated incident that they have engaged in this kind of God-forgetful behavior, but this has become standard practice for them. So it is of paramount importance that they and we pay attention. And as I was uh, thinking about this, the, the first point that I want to point out here is actually coming from what you don't see in this passage. So let me give it to you, and I'll explain it. Point is, proper planning always keeps God in view. Proper planning always keeps God in view. And the real uh, sin that they have committed right off the bat here is the fact that they are planning without God in view at all. It's just like what I said at the outset. They were in tr tr uh, trouble and trial, and they cried out to God, and, and somehow, even in the midst of their persecution, they're, they're this, this group of people, this subset of people, their business has begun to come back around, and so they have just decided to move on as if everything was fine, and they have done so without seeking the Lord. But this, again, is very problematic because it flies in the face of all kinds of things. Let's consider what the writer of the Proverbs said, Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord 
establishes his steps. And if we want to get this wrong, well, we just follow and do what they did. But we don't want to get it wrong. We want to get it right. So what do we need to keep in mind here? Well, I think the doctrine that will really help us, the doctrine in view here, is the sovereignty of God. And that is that God is ultimately in charge of all things. This is His universe. It's His uh, planet and so on and so forth. And what's really ironic about this is they are operating as if they were sovereign of their own planet, of their own universe, which couldn't be further from the truth. And it's uh, not a problem that it's just for them. It is for all Christians. We can fall into this. Kent Hughes points this out. He was talking about this in his commentary. He says, So pervasive is our culture's arrogant independence of God that many perhaps even most Christians, attend church, marry, choose their vocations, have children, buy and sell homes, expand their portfolios, and numbly ride the currents of culture without substantial reference to the will of God. More Christians never seriously pray about God's will concerning their vocation, their family direction, their entertainment. They never seek God's will, and they change Augustine's phrase, love God and do as you please, to do as you please and say that you love God. Now, that's hard for us to hear. None of us in this room want to be this way on purpose, but because of the water in which we live in this culture and because of what is now true in many churches, sadly, we are easily influenced and we just slip into this pattern of thinking. So let me ask a couple of questions that will help pull us out of the mud this morning. When you seek to make plans, whatever they are, financial, relational, vacation, so on and so forth, do they begin with God? Is He even on the radar? Is He even a consideration? Because if not, we're following right down this dangerous path that these folks would have been on. And we need this corrective, this gentle reminder, this pull back from the precipice that James offers us this morning. But sadly, that is only the first of the three problems that James addresses here in this couple of verses. Look back at your text there. So, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. And then James throws this phrase in here, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. So the second problem that they're having is they are not simply assuming they're their own sovereign. They are also planning as if they know the future when they actually don't. And it's almost as if they have constructed their own little crystal ball and they think that they know what's going to happen. And James is saying, listen, you, your knowledge is limited. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. And here I think the last couple of years, goodness, what a great reminder for us in that. We have been reminded time after time after time from every single angle, whether it was COVID or governmental problems or uh, financial instability with the markets and now all this inflation and so on, we do not know what tomorrow will bring. And then James goes a step further than that, so that's the second problem. The third problem, he uses this example from nature and he says, <coughs> what is your life for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And so the third thing that they've forgotten here is the brevity of life. And this mist that he's talking about here, it is basically uh, what any of us experience when we go outside on a cold morning. 
That's particularly true if you try to jog on a cold morning. You, just, you, you have your breath come out, and you look like a dragon of some kind. And, but that puff of smoke, that puff of mist, is only there just for an instant, and it's gone. And that's what James is saying here. <laughs> you act like you are the master of the universe, and the reality is your breath is gone, for two, gone in two seconds, and that's what your life will be like. And this is apparently a very important truth that God wants us to understand because it's not just James that leans into this. Other writers in the Bible talk about this as well. It comes up time and time again uh, in the book of Job. Let me give you just a couple of examples. Chapter 7, he says, My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle. As the cloud fades and vanishes, so is he who goes down to Sheol and does not come up. Page or two later, Job chapter 9, he says, My days are swifter than a runner. And then after that, they go by like skiffs of reed. But Job wasn't the only one who understood this. King David also understood this in the Psalms as well. A couple of examples here. Psalm 102, 11, my days are like an evening shadow. Psalm 39, 5, you have made my days a few handbreadths. And then perhaps his most famous recitation on this topic, as for man, his days are like grasp. Psalm 103, 15. So if the first problem is they've forgotten God, the second problem is they've forgotten uh, that, that their life is very short, and on top of that, that they don't know the future, if we want to stand against that, let me give it to you in principle form. Proper planning also includes a correct assessment of our limited knowledge and our momentary nature. Proper planning also includes a correct assessment of our limited knowledge and our momentary nature. And this is particularly on my mind uh, for a variety of reasons. Number one, uh, because of the last couple years that we have been in. I mean, I, I was talking to a guy the other day. Um, he didn't have a COVID experience like mine. In fact, he hadn't even been ill, but it was an older gentleman, and he said, I've been very fortunate not to get this disease, but I have lost six friends over the course of the past year and a half because of this. And this was a very successful, very wealthy businessman, travels all over the country, and it was very top of mind for him that life can end in an instant. And I think there's also a special word for us here, depending on where some of us are in our journey. And what I mean by that is we are coming into what I would like to call graduation season. The Neelys are experiencing this with Nate that's getting ready to graduate and uh, leave the nest and so on and so forth. And, and so we're, you're kind of in that space where you're, you're starting to hear these speeches and everybody's life's out in front of them and everybody's going to go change the world. And the reality is some people are and some of those same people are going to flunk out of college and be back home like everybody's path. We, we just don't know exactly how it's going to go. But there is this assumption that we do. But what James is saying to us here is, listen, we don't. We don't know. But what we do know for sure is life is very short and eternity is very long. And we need to walk with God and trust in God and lay hold of the gospel and apply it to all areas of life. Because one day we will give an account for this life and we need to make the most of it that we can. And if you do have a student in your life or you have cousins or whatever that, that you might have an opportunity to, to speak this to them in some way, I think it would be a good service to them. In fact, one of the illustrations that I found this week 
Uh, some of us, for our modern sensibilities, might think this is a little weird, but there's definitely something to what I'm about to say here. Long time ago, uh, when an Eastern in, uh, emperor was crowned in Constantinople, the royal mason would come and he would set before him, on his day of coronation, a number of large marble slabs. And on the day when all of this greatness was happening and he was getting the crown and all this, he was also picking out his tombstone. And the thinking there was, on the day when this individual is to be elevated the most, may he never forget that one day he will be de-elevated six feet. And that even at his highest point, that would not last forever, but his lowest point was coming very soon. Now again, I don't know that we need to necessarily do that, but there is some truth in that. And there's some wisdom in that to always be thinking, hey, we, we don't know when our time's going to run out, and we want to make the most of this for the glory of God and the good of the world. And so part of the issue with these folks is they had completely lost sight of that. And part of the gift that this is to us is to guard and to help us from turning around and doing the same. And so that's where James leads. Look at the rest of verse 14 and 15 and so on. He says, instead, you ought to say. So this is one of those classic examples where he says, don't do this, do this instead. It's one of the things I love about the Bible. He says, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now let me work backwards on this. So that last phrase there, the way I think this is to be best interpreted is he's, it, it can stand alone. I mean, if we know what we're supposed to do and we don't do it, that's a sin. That's a, that's a general truth. But in its context here, what he's saying is, I'm telling you what to do. I'm telling you how to live. I'm telling you how to plan properly. You're now responsible for this information. Please do it. And if not, that's sinful. So that's, that's 17. And what he does here in the, the verses immediately previous is he really serves us in two ways. He is showing us this sin on the outside, the improper planning, this tip of the iceberg stuff, but then he also shows us the rest of the iceberg under, and that is pride. And it's really fascinating, the, the uh, particular rebuke that he gives here. The Greek literally says, you are boasting in your arrogant pretensions. And it refers to a proud confidence in one's own knowledge or cleverness and arrogance. And it implies that these qualities are not really possessed. And so again, the irony here just drips from this, that these folks think they have it all together. They think they have all of this knowledge. And the reality is they just flat don't. And so when he then says uh, this phrase, if the Lord wills, what he's calling us toward here isn't simply a phrase itself, but rather a posture. It's not simply an axiom. It's an attitude. It's not simply a statement to drop into our conversation, though it's certainly okay if we do, but it's really a state of mind and a state of heart. And so the third and final point that I want to make from this today is that proper planning requires a humble if the Lord wills, attitude. Proper planning requires a humble, if the Lord wills, 
attitude. And you see this time and time again in Paul's ministry. Uh, just a couple of examples here. Acts 18, 21, 1 Corinthians 4, 19. Uh, but then he does not always use this phrase in other instances. Uh, Romans 15, 28, 1 Corinthians 16, 5, so on and so forth. So it's not just, I'm going to drop this phrase into my conversation and then do whatever I want. It's this attitude of my life belongs to the Lord, my time belongs to the Lord, I want to do what He wants to do, and I want to let my life be guided by His will. So I think holistically, one of the hard questions we need to ask ourselves is, does that describe our planning process? Whatever it is that we're trying to set out to do. Is it, this is my will, Lord, please bless it? Or is it, Lord, I want to know what you want to do, and please guide me to sync up with what you are calling for in this moment. And you might say, well, goodness, if I do that, I'm not going to have any fun. We're going to be super broke. And nobody, we're going to sackcloth and ashes for here on out. And I just don't think that that is the case. Now, have people overdosed on the wrong end of this truth? I believe they absolutely have. That's another sermon for another time. But the idea here of assuming that if we really go all in with Jesus, that that is going to lead to death and destruction and despair, that is just not the kind of abundant life that Jesus lays out before us. Will there be suffering? Absolutely. That's part of what it means to be a Christian. But in the midst of that suffering, there's still hope and there's still joy because you know you're doing what God has called you to do. So shifting to this kind of thinking that we want to take vacation in the name of Jesus, we want to work our job in the name of Jesus, we want to parent in the name of Jesus, we want to submit everything to the will of God. Friends, that's where the real joy is. That's where the real freedom is. That's where the light and life and the eternal impact and the leaving behind a life of regret and embracing a life of purpose, that's where all that is. So we want to plan with this idea of if the Lord wills. We want to submit everything that we have and all that we are to Him and trust that He knows what's best. Now, how do we do that? I want to get real practical here at the end, and I want to give us just a few things. The first one that, uh, first step that I would give to, to put feet on this is it begins with the Bible. And in, in everything, it should begin with the Bible, but I'm being very specific here, and, and, and I want to call your attention to a couple of what I would call sovereignty scriptures, just a couple. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. That's Psalm 115.3. Proverbs 16.33 says this, The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. And then when you go from a couple of verses like that, that maybe you put on a post-it note, or you put them on the post-it note of your heart or your mind, and you just begin to operate in this format and this framework, you begin to see this thread in many of the great stories of Scripture. Just a couple of examples here. Joseph is a great example here. Here's a guy headed in the right direction. Then he, his brothers sell him into slavery, and he goes from eventually up to a place of prominence and then ends up uh, languishing in prison for quite some time. And, and then at the end of that, when he is finally and officially delivered, when he looks back at his story, still what he says is to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. 
So there's a sense of submission to an understanding of that there is a greater plan at work than his, his own simple plan, and that he's able to, to submit to that and see God's purpose even in the, the awfulness of how it went sometimes. That, that shows a maturity and a rest and, a, and, and that some of this if-the-Lord-wills attitude that we're talking about here. You see this in some of the other stories as well. Uh, Daniel in the lion's den, David, pretty much almost all the good stories from David's life. There's this sense of trust and, and, and submission to the larger plan that was at work around them. Uh, the early church is a great example of this in the book of Acts. Uh, you can see they are moving in a certain direction. <coughs> But it's clearly all submitted to God's plans. And, of course, we talked about that in the life of Paul, that uh, there's one example he's wanting to go. I think it's to Rome, and it says the, the Spirit of God um, <coughs> prohibited me from going there. So there's this submission to, here's what I think I know, but I also recognize humbly that I have a short life, limited information, and I submit myself to what God ultimately has going on, and I trust Him in it. And he directs me as I go. Of course, the greatest example of this is, is the Lord Jesus. Everything in his life lined up with what we're talking about here. Uh, one of the quintessential scriptures that point this out, John chapter 4, verse 34 says, My food is to do the will of the one who sent me. And so in the midst of all that, because of Jesus' perfection in this area, we can go to him with our imperfection and asked him to help us with all of our planning, whatever it is. So it begins with the Bible. Second thing is, I would say we plan accordingly in pencil. We plan accordingly in pencil. And what I mean by that is I don't think that this text in any way is, uh, it is saying that we shouldn't make plans. It, James is not against goals. He's not, uh, you know, poo-pooing on good leadership and strategic thinking. Quite the opposite. What he's calling out is the godless attitude that these folks had adopted within the midst of it. The presumption, the assuming, the operating as their own sovereign. That's what he's calling out. And so we do need to make plans. But we also need to make those plans in pencil in the sense that we don't fall into these pitfalls. And so a couple of examples from my own life, we're trying to plan um, some time away during this sabbatical I'm going to take this summer. We're, we're trying to plan with all the stuff that Nate's got going on, trying to get out the door, so on and so forth. But every plan we make, we know it may or may not happen. And so because there's so many things that we cannot control. And so I think part of the balance that we have to strike there in godly wisdom is you don't want to become a fatalist and a totally Murphy's Lawer that is like, we can't book a plane ticket because there's going to be some pilot, you know. We can't go totally down that rabbit hole. But at the same time, we can't assume that everything we put our hand to is going to happen. So this attitude of planning and pencil uh, really it has served us very well. We do the same thing with our personal finances uh, as we seek to steward the money that God has given us. And, you know, I pray about investments. We need to do this or this or this. And But I know not all of them are going to pan out. Sometimes you're going to buy at the wrong time or the house value is going to go backwards. There's no way to know everything. But if you go into it with the attitude of I'm planning this in pencil, 
I've prayed, I've done my due diligence, I've submitted all this to the Lord, and you go into it with an attitude of, God, this is all your money anyway. I'm just stewarding it for this very short period of time. Please help me on this path. It just puts you in such a better place when the inevitable happens. Because it doesn't matter how much we try to hedge ourselves from everything. You can't protect yourself from everything. But this attitude of planning and pencil really gives you comfort, and it keeps you from being as disappointed when things go wrong. Kind of a sub-point on this is also, I would say, learn to be appropriately gospel skeptical of your own heart. And what I mean by that is you don't walk around assuming that all of your motives are pure all the time. I remember when mentor spoke this into my life. I was struggling with a particular sin at that time, and he and I were talking about it. And uh, I, I was like, man, why can I just not, I can't seem to get a handle on this. And he reminded me of, of, of uh, that the, the T in our total depravity needs to be very tall. <laughs> and that even as we come to know Jesus and we are growing in Jesus, so on and so forth, we're never going to get completely away from a selfish motive at some point or, you know, lack of discipline or bad habit in some area, so on and so forth. And, and again, it doesn't excuse our sin, but it also gives us a realistic view of we are not going to be perfect until we get to heaven and are with Jesus and we get that new body that's not going to break down. And so as we make these plans, even in pencil, even with all the attitude that we're talking about here, I'm still a little bit side-eye sometimes toward myself, and even that has helped me. And that's where it can be helpful to pull in some other people and say, hey, I'm doing the best I can with this. What do you see? Where, where am I at here? Am I, am I assuming something I don't need to assume? So on and so forth, and it can really help. And that kind of leads to the last thing here, because what is the ultimate, ultimate underlying issue with all of this? What is the rest of that iceberg issue that James said? It's pride. And pride is the kind of sin that we do experience victory over. But man, I tell you, it's like whack-a-mole. Like if you beat it down over here, it is, you're just one bad thing away from that mole popping back up and you have to whack that one too. And so this idea here of, uh, this is where Martin Luther was a real help to me. He, he talks about the concept of repentance and he says, all of life is repentance. So it's not simply that we repent of pride once and for all, and okay, now we're good. All our plans are going to be amazing, even if they're in pencil. But it's this continual idea that we continue to go back to Jesus, not for salvation, but for sanctification, and say, Lord, I want to submit this to you. Please help me to be humble on this. Please bless this. I want to be in a place where you will be glorified and other people will be helped. And let me just be a conduit for what you want to do through this situation. And so that we aren't simply repenting one time on the issue of pride, but all of life is a continual acknowledgement of our deep and abiding need for Jesus and that he's going to be there to help us in that. And so that being said, let's talk about Jesus here. Because if we want to have proper planning, Jesus is who we need to help us. If we want to seek to, as writers of old would say, mortify this sin of pride, Jesus is who we need to help us. 
And the more time we spend with Jesus and the more attractive Jesus becomes to us, the more our hearts melt, the better planners we become, and the more humble we become and put ourselves in a place where God really can bless us. Anytime I think about Jesus and I think about humility, I can't get away from Philippians chapter 2. Paul says this, he said, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. By taking the very form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So if you want to plan properly, you go to Jesus. He will give you the humility that you need because He is the ultimate embodiment of humility. You want to be a better planner, you go to Jesus for wisdom that Jesus had. You want to be a better planner, you go to Jesus for all of the resources that He provides. He is the ultimate example of getting this text right. Who better can help us if we want to get this text right as well? So let me close today by asking this question. In light of this text, where do you need Jesus' help the most? Is it in some of these practical reminders of not making assumptions, not trying to be our own sovereign, recognizing the, the momentary nature of our own life? Or is it in some other adjacent way? Friends, whatever it is that we need, Jesus will help. Let's go to Him now and ask. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank You for Your Word this morning. We thank you that you can teach us from the mistakes of others. Lord, we recognize in, in some way we're all guilty of this same thing. But Lord, we don't want to be. We don't want to be proud. We want to be humble. We don't want to plan in concrete and then pitch an absolute fit when things don't go the way that we want. We want to appropriately plan in pencil with this if-the-Lord-wills attitude. And Lord, I pray that we would have that as individuals, and we'd also have that as a church. Lord, we submit ourselves to you afresh and anew as a community, and, and we trust you with whatever the future holds. And pray that that would be the same for all of us as individuals as well. Lord, I also pray that you would cultivate a deeper sense of trust in you to be the foundation for that. Lord, as we grow to see you as fully trustworthy, this may never be easy, but this will get easier. And so we ask for you to grow our view of you even today. Lord, we thank you for this time that we've had to spend together. And we pray all this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.